Glory to God in the highest. It's great to be together to worship this morning. Our call to worship comes from the second letter to the church at Corinth. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. And now let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. God of all eternity, in Christ you not only invite us to be here, but you call us to come. God beyond understanding, by your spirit, you not only call us, but you draw us here to meet you. Here in this place, at this time, we find ourselves once again under your thrall, mystified at your presence within and around us, marvelling at your interest in us and in the world of which we are so small a part, and we praise you. God of all liberty, through Christ you free us from all that denies our humanity. In Jesus you show us how to live as your children, freed from sin and death. Here in this place, at this time, we find ourselves amazed at your forgiveness set free from the errors and sins of the past, offered new hope and a fresh start every new day. And so we praise you. God of justice, through Christ you call us to live the gospel we proclaim. By your spirit's indwelling, you enable us to show forth truth. Here in this place, at this time, we marvel that you would entrust this to people like us. People who are shaped for good or for ill by our past experiences. People who can find ourselves trapped in prejudice or in regret. People who sometimes struggle to find the right path in a confusing and confused world. So we pause before you, asking that you would set us free from the memories and the regrets that bind us. that you would strengthen us to walk in ways that will bring you delight. And that you would soften us to be as gentle with one another as you are with us.
For we bring our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. Our reading today is from Galatians in the New Testament, page 238, the Pew Bible. Freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, it means that Christ is of no use to you at all. Once more, I warn any man who allows himself to be circumcised that he's obliged to obey the whole law. Those of you who try to put right with God by obeying the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You're outside God's grace. As for us, our hope is that God will put us right with him and that this is what we wait for by the power of God's Spirit working through our faith. For when we are in union union with Christ Jesus, what matters is faith that works through love. You were doing so well. Who made you stop obeying the truth? How did they persuade you? It was not done by God who calls you. It takes only a a little yeast to make the whole batch of dough rise, as they say. But I still feel confident about you. Our life in union with the Lord makes me confident that you will not take a different view and that whoever is upsetting you will be punished by God. But as for me, my friends, if I continue to preach that circumcision is necessary, why am I being persecuted? If that were true, then my preaching about the cross of Christ would cause no trouble. I wish that the people who are upsetting you would go all the way, let them go on and castrate themselves. As for you, my friends, you are called to be free, but do not let this freedom become an excuse for letting your physical desires control you. Instead, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. But if you act like wild animals, hurting and harming each other, then watch out or you will completely destroy one another. What I say is this, let the spirit direct your lives and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. For what our human nature wants is opposed to what the spirit wants and what the spirit wants is opposed to what our human nature wants. These two are enemies And this means that you cannot do what you want to do. If the Spirit leads you, then you are not subject to the law. What human nature does is quite plain. It shows itself in immoral, filthy and indecent actions, in worship of idols and witchcraft. People become enemies and they fight. They become jealous, angry and ambitious. They separate into parties and groups. They are envious, get drunk, have orgies and do other things like these. I warn you now, as I have before, those who do these things will not possess the kingdom of God. But the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility and self-control. There is no law against such things as these. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have to put death in their human nature with all its passions and desires. The Spirit has given us life. He must also control our lives. We must not be proud 
or irritate one another or be jealous of one another. Amen. Can I thank Bethany and Edith for bringing that reading to us? It's great, uh, Bethany, that you're freeing up your gift as a reader for the wider benefit of the church. And thanks to Sheila, who's standing in for Paul today, freeing up her gifts and giving Paul the freedom to have a much-needed Sunday off. Every now and then, I preach a sermon that emerges from thinking about what it means to be Baptist. And whenever I do that, I'm a little bit tentative because there are lots of people who love being part of this church and who play a very active part in serving God through it, who I know wouldn't choose that label for themselves. And yet we trust that somehow or other, God's spirit draws us all together as a community of faith at this place, at this time, that uses the label of Baptist with all that that means. And though it is useful sometimes to think, well, what does it mean for us as Baptists to live and work together? What is unique or less common about how we are? Because we are actually quite an unusual tradition. In fact, we're not, strictly speaking, a denomination. The structures to which Baptist churches belong, but are not obliged to belong, are sometimes called unions, sometimes called conferences, and sometimes called congresses in different parts of the world. For the most part, those are geographical groupings of Baptist. So there's a Baptist Union of Scotland, there is a Baptist Union of Wales, there is a Black Baptist Convention of South Africa, just to name three that I can think of off the top of my head. Groups of churches who think we have enough in common that we covenant together. And most of those Baptist unions and conferences and conventions and congresses also belong to something called the Baptist World Alliance. It's a kind of union of unions who covenant together to serve God in a distinct way, but who do so with a minimum set of principles. I had a look at the BWA website, Baptist World Alliance website, this week, and this is what it says. This is what holds Baptists together all around the world. The Baptist World Alliance is a global movement of Baptists sharing a common confession of faith in Jesus Christ, bonded together by God's love to support and encourage and strengthen one another while proclaiming and living the gospel of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to a lost and hurting world. That's all it says. If you look at other denominations and traditions, you will find pages and pages and pages of what they sign up to. And not all Baptist unions and conferences and conventions belong to the BWA. One of the biggest ones in the world, the American Southern Baptists, do not belong to the BWA. They withdrew, as it happens, over the ordination of women, but there we go. So Baptists join together voluntarily. What the BWA does not do is tell individual Baptists in other countries how they should live. They leave that for them to determine themselves. Within the UK, there are several Baptist unions, two of which I've already mentioned, of differing sizes. They reflect a diverse history, theology, and geography. 
And as we know and remind ourselves from time to time, Hillhead belongs both to the Baptist Union of Scotland and to the Baptist Union of Great Britain, which makes us amongst Scottish Baptist churches quite unusual. But there is one principle, well, there are three principles that the two unions have, which are virtually identical in wording. And at the heart of that is that churches voluntarily enter a covenant relationship with all other members of the union by agreeing to these three statements that form what's called the Declaration of Principle. And if you look on the BUS website or the BUGB website, you can, you can read those for yourselves. So Baptists, then, are basically a community of communities, a collection of independent, autonomous churches who covenant to walk together with God, accepting and respecting the complexity and the challenge that brings. One of the things that means is that whilst the Church of Scotland or the Church of England or the Methodist Conference or even the General Assembly of the United Reformed Church can say to their churches, this is what you must do, the Baptist unions can only say, this is what we recommend that you do. That each church has, quotes, liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer Christ's laws end quote, is part of what Baptist churches sign up to, accepting and even embracing the diversity that that will bring in terms of theology, in terms of worship style, and in terms of practice. The truth is that most of the time, most Baptists agree on most things. But the liberty to be guided by God's Holy Spirit in directions that other may find a bit surprising is enshrined in our self-understanding. Other churches might be surprised by things that we do here in Hillhead. And we may be surprised by what they do. But neither they nor we have the monopoly on being in tune with God's Spirit. Each local congregation has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer Christ's laws. At its best, a Baptist understanding of church is a very grown-up way of being church. It's a way that gives each local congregation the freedom to discern how best it can serve God in its place and its time. It says to each local church, you have within you all the necessary gifts and skills to discern the mind of Christ. And you have the responsibility to do that. We're not going to do it for you. A Baptist church doesn't have the luxury of waiting to be told by somebody in an ivory tower what it should do, how it should behave. It doesn't have a bishop or an overseer who will enforce edicts. It's trusted to get on and live out its discipleship. That seems to me to be a very grown-up way of being church. It's a way of being church that has the humility to accept that context, whether that's geographical or socio-political 
or temporal, as in time, may lead to individual congregations reaching different conclusions on what seem to be similar or even the same issues. Diversity is enshrined within this grown-up understanding. And that's not a lazy, anything-goes-it's-all-okay view. Actually, it's a very demanding approach, which requires us as adults to engage with complex issues that can challenge us very deeply. Baptist way of being church is not a consumerist way of being church. It's a way that demands a lot of us. Part of being a grown-up church is the recognition that even when the gifts and skills we have are done well, we are part of something bigger than just a local Christian club. Being part of a union of churches means we covenant together to support and encourage one another, to help resource one another. And if we were to look back at our history, to be accountable to one another. That's one of the things that's kind of, in all kinds of churches, people are less comfortable with that kind of openness and accountability that our forebears expected. Being part of a union is important. It gives us helpful checks and balances as we ponder how to serve Christ. But in return, as part of a union, we can also be a prophetic voice on topics where we have experience or understanding that others may not. To be at liberty under Christ, then, is not license to do as we like at one extreme, And neither is it a legalistic adherence to a book of rules at the other. It's complicated and it's demanding. It's a commitment to work together with the help of God's spirit, using our intelligence, and we've all got some, and our energy, and even if you're feeling tired, you have some, to work out what it means to follow Jesus in this place, at this time, as part of this community. The chapter we heard read from us for Galatians picks up exactly that challenge. The readers, the people to whom it's written, have come to faith in Jesus. And it seems they were growing in maturity, but then they tripped up over the question of circumcision. Deliberately asked, Edith to read that bit. I didn't think it was very fair to ask uh, Bethany to read that. For us today, that probably seems just ridiculous to get hung up over circumcision because you don't do it. It's not necessary. We're free from all that kind of thing. But that made me wonder just what for us is the shibboleth of acceptance. And do we even know where the word shibboleth comes from? It's an Old Testament test of whether you were a Hebrew, an Israelite or not, if you could say shibboleth or not. I can't say it very well, so despite my Jewish ancestry, I'm probably not a proper one. You can't say shibboleth, you weren't in, you were out. But what is it for us that are the things that have to be done to be accepted? Is it some kind of ritual? Is it some kind of code that we know and others perhaps don't? What is it? Are we in danger 
of putting up our own stumbling blocks, things that trip people up, things that stop them developing as mature disciples of Jesus. It's easy, isn't it, to say that liberty is not the same as license. We all know that. But as adults, we know it's not quite so easy as the black and white concept of right and wrong we may have learned as children. There are an awful lot of fuzzy grey areas that demand us to think. don't know how many of you studied sciences at school, but when I was at school doing my sciences, up to the O level we were taught a certain understanding, or GCSE or O grade or standard grade or whatever it would be, wherever you lived. And that was okay for them. And then we went on to A-levels, and they said, oh, no, 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 forget everything we taught you at O-level. It was a lie. Well, actually, it was a simplification. It's more complicated than that. You need to understand it this way. Now, this is the real way. And then when I went to university, they didn't actually tell us that we'd been lied to, but actually, it's more complicated again. I have a suspicion it's the same with our faith and our discipleship. It's good to start with the basics, to identify the principles that shape our understanding. But a mature faith and a mature church is going to be willing to go back and revisit those same things time and again with new insights, willing to hear what it is that God has to say to us. Towards the end of that chapter from Galatians, the writer reels off a list of examples of what is sometimes translated as the works of the flesh, the sinful nature, or in the the Good News Bible, human nature. The NRSV puts it like this. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So are they obvious? Well, at first sight, they probably are. But hang on a minute... What does each word really mean? Just suppose we pick drunkenness as an example. What do we mean by drunkenness? Is that being a little bit giggly after a glass of champagne? Does it mean drinking more than the drink-drive limit for the country you happen to live in? Which is different if you live in the UK from if you live in Sweden. Does it mean getting so drunk you can't recall the party you were at? Does it mean being in the habit of drinking every day? Does it mean being rude, abusive or violent when you drink? See, it's very easy for us to say drunkenness is bad. But what do we actually mean by drinking too much? What do we mean by unacceptable behaviour as a consequence of drink? Our forebears went for a teetotal approach. And then there was the temperance approach. 
And now in most churches, most of the time, we say, do you know what? You're big enough, old enough, and as my father used to say, ugly enough to work it out for yourselves. It's not necessarily so obvious where to draw the line. And one of the things we need to remember is that words have meanings that change over time and are determined within a context. We need to be very careful when we take words that were written to first century people in Galatia and read them in 21st century Glasgow. Suppose we use the word idolatry or worship of idols, as the Good News Bible puts it. The original people who read this lived in a very different culture from ours. And if you went out and about, you would see idols, temples, shrines to all manner of different deities. And that's what they would have understood this to mean. Don't go and worship false gods, foreign gods. Don't go to those, those um, idols, those temples. But actually, in our culture, idolatry is something quite different. We have programs like Pop Idol, don't we? This aspiration to be an idol, to be this thing of worship. is almost an encouragement to a form of idolatry. And nowadays, in Christian circles, idolatry is often used to refer to materialism. Getting a bigger house, a bigger car, a better holiday, a faster computer, whatever it is. Or getting more pleasure, more things for ourselves. It's so easy to say, avoid idolatry. But actually, the meaning of the word is complicated and quite slippery. So is it obvious, as the writer says, the works of the flesh are obvious? Whenever I get a list like that, I have to force myself to slow down and read it carefully to avoid it skipping past the things that just don't seem to be that important and focus on the things that I think are big. Sometimes we think, you know, that this is all about other people and what they do. But reading that list with words like envy and jealousy and rage and selfish ambition and dissensions, cliques, we start to realise it's talking about us too. Suppose we use quarrels as an example. Very easy to say, well, of course, it doesn't mean disagreeing about whose turn it is to wash up and having a little row about it. Of course, it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean squabbling about which hymn book we use. And it doesn't mean stamping my feet if I don't get my way, does it? Well, actually, it probably does include all of those. So how do we learn to handle disagreement and difference? Because those things happen. That's part of life. Being a grown-up church means handling grown-up issues in a grown-up way with grown-up attitudes. The closing verses of this chapter give us another list. It's a very well-known and much-loved list. It's one that some of us perhaps learned as a song when we were in Sunday school. The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Gentleness. 
faithfulness, self-control. It's not enough just to say, well, that's the opposite of the sinful nature. This is what we now have. We are amazing Christians. We don't do any of those things anymore. And nor is it enough to say, well, those are easy and obvious what they mean. And we exactly know how to live that way. Because actually it's very complicated, isn't it? What do we mean by kindness? What do we mean by gentleness? What do we mean by joy or love or peace? And yet, these are the characteristics that are essential and central to our life together as a community of faith at liberty under Christ. The reality is that sometimes we will have differences of opinion. Sometimes we will have to face different issues. Ethical issues, discipline issues, Theology issues, all sorts of issues. There will be times when we have to agree to disagree. There will be times when we have to bite our tongues. And times when we have to speak out. But if we're going to be an authentically good Baptist church, a grown-up church, at liberty under Christ, then how we do things must be loving Joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good-natured, gentle, faithful, and with self-control. Now, we won't always get it right, and I certainly don't always get it right. Sometimes we find ourselves doing the things that are on that list of things to be avoided, or maybe doing the others like them. It's interesting, it's not a closed list, it's an open list of things that we shouldn't do. And other times we will fail to show the characteristics on the list of spiritual fruit. I know I'm not always particularly patient, and I'm not always particularly good-natured or gentle. But as a Baptist church, we covenant together, we commit together to walk with God at liberty under Christ to interpret and administer his laws in this place. Being in a Baptist church is hard work. Don't think it's easy. Don't think you can just come on a Sunday and go away. It actually requires us to engage. And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in this place, in this time? How do we hold together a rejection of evil with a spirit that requires us to be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and so on? We need to be glad that we have God's Holy Spirit with us always and that we have freedom and life because we have Christ as our Lord. In our prayers for others this morning, there is a response. When I say the word, God who brings freedom, would you join me in saying, hear our prayer? So God who brings freedom, hear our prayer. Let's pray together.
God of freedom, God of justice, God whose love is strong as death, God who saw the dark of prison, God who knew the price of faith. Touch our world of sad oppression with your spirit's healing touch. We pray for those who are trapped by circumstance, unable to achieve their potential due to their postcode or their parentage or their race or their gender or something else over which they have no control. Let justice be done enabling all to become the people you have made them to be. God, who brings freedom, hear our prayer. We pray for those who are imprisoned by fear, the rational fears of a violent world, and the strange, bewildering fears born of experience or illness. Let freedom be theirs, freedom from violence, freedom from fear, freedom to live in peace and to walk in hope. God of freedom, hear our prayer. We pray for those who are in jails and prisons, those who have committed crimes, those who have been wrongly accused and those whose opinions or beliefs offend the powers that be. Grant to them inner freedom, release from guilt, shame and regret and where it would be just, physical liberty also. God of freedom, hear our prayer. We pray for ourselves, people for whom freedom is both a gift and a responsibility. Where we abuse that freedom, deliberately or accidentally, forgive us and help us to do better. where we refuse to live as free people, engaging with tough questions of justice. Forgive us and help us to do better. Where we are trapped by our own past decisions or experiences, set us free to live the hope we have in Christ. God of freedom, Hear our prayer. Captivate us, Lord, so that our true freedom is found in Christ. Set us free from all that hinders, so that we may live and grow in love. Liberate us and make us liberators of others. To the glory of Christ, who has freed us from the bonds of sin and death. Amen.
Freedom and life are ours, for Christ has set us free. As we go out from here to our daily lives, may God's spirit inspire us to live as free people, as forgiven people who bear the good news of Christ. And may the blessing of God Almighty, equipper, liberator and inspirer, be ours this day and every day. Amen.